Thank you for visiting the openword.org, where you can find a verse-by-verse exposition of almost the entire Holy Bible and other theological resources. Welcome to the next part of the series from Alan Schaefer. Second Thessalonians chapter 2 is where we'll start. I got all of Thessalonians up on the web except 2 and 3, chapters 2 and 3 here. So everything else is out there now. Those who want to go out and look at it. See, Willie's out at something and he's out at a business meeting this week. He had some business meeting or something. So looks like it's just us tonight, <clears throat> unless our Romanian boys show up, which they probably will do. Second Thessalonians chapter 2. Father, thanks for this night of study. Open our hearts as we look at probably one of the most pivotal passages in the New Testament about the coming man of sin. I pray that uh, we would gain some understanding from this passage. We thank you for the opportunity of study in Christ's name. Amen. Second Thessalonians chapter 2, Paul continues his discussion of the problem that the Thessalonian believers were facing regarding the day of the Lord. And uh, if he, he's already discussed with them the fact that the persecution they are going through is not part of the day of the Lord persecution. It is persecution, but it's not that persecution. And of course, probably where they got that is Matthew 24, where Christ talks about the great persecutions that are going to come about during that tribulational period on believers. And they were thinking that maybe they were just in that day of the Lord. Paul says, no, you're not. And then uh, in chapter 2, he further discusses the reasons why they are not by talking about the great apostasy, the falling away, and the coming of the man of sin. And this passage here, along with Revelation chapter 13, gives us the fullest picture of the character of this coming man of sin. Now concerning the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ and our gathering together to Him, we ask you not to be so soon shaken in mind or troubled, either by spirit or by word or by letter, as if from us, as though the day of Christ had come. Um, chapter In verse 1 there it talks about the coming of the Lord Jesus Christ and our gathering together with Him. And I don't know if the book points this out, but I will that the Greek construct there um, is meant to convey the idea that those are simultaneous events. It's not two separate events, it's a simultaneous event. When Christ comes, we're gathered together with Him, gathered to Him, and the coming is at the same time. Now what coming is He talking about here? Well, this is the coming of Christ prior to the day of the Lord when Christ comes. And he's just using the day of the Lord as a general term to refer to what happens after the coming of Christ. Here's the coming of Christ, here's the day of the Lord right after that. And this is Christ coming. And when he comes we are gathered to him. Gathered to him. Um, and it says here that they are not to be shaken in mind or troubled. Uh, the idea there is to be knocked off your, your composure, to be upset. 
And we get a hint as to what would do this, well, either by a spirit or word or letter, as if from us. Um, evidently what possibly have happened here is that someone showed up in the congregation and said, well, Paul got a new revelation from God. He made a mistake. You are in the day of the Lord. And here's, here's what's going on. And uh, evidently even they might have even brought a letter with them. Say, here, this is the letter that Paul sent. Here you are. And uh, Paul says, I didn't write any letter. And I didn't send any message. And I certainly didn't get any new revelation. So don't let yourself be shaken or troubled as though we gave something new. Um, they had their Marv Rosenthal's in that day as well, trying to make Christians go through this day of judgment. And then as though the day of Christ, now some versions have Christ in it. Um, this is one of those examples where just about every significant text of the New Testament um, document, New Testament manuscript, has Lord instead of Christ. So it's better, I think, the better understanding of this is the day of the Lord, not the day of Christ. There's like two manuscripts that have Christ in it, and uh, everything else has Lord in it, day of the Lord. Um, so I think that's the better understanding, the day of the Lord. Um, because that was what they were troubled by. I mean, it would not make any sense for him to say the day of Christ. The day of the Lord is what was troubling them. And he said, let, let no one deceive you by any means, for that day <coughs> will not come unless the falling away comes first. Verse 3 of chapter 2 of Second Thessalonians. And the man of sin is revealed, the son of perdition. Alright. So, before this day of the Lord here, before that happens, um, the day of Christ's judgment now, what has to happen? Unless the falling away comes first. The falling away. That's a, the Greek word apostasia. And they've got all kinds of interpretations on what that means. What's an apostate? Yeah, they knew the truth, they turned away from the truth. Is that like losing your salvation? No, it's not losing your salvation. As a good Calvinist, you know you can't lose your salvation. So just, um, But uh, the apostasia, some say, well, this refers to Israel turning from Christ. That's a possibility. Others say this refers to people turning away from the truth of the Bible. That's a possibility. It's really hard to nail down, I think, exactly what it means, the falling away. Some have even used this word, the falling away, to refer to the rapture. Saying the falling away means to go up in the rapture. I think that's really a push in, the, push in it quite a bit, far beyond the meaning of the text. I think the basic idea here is to ask ourselves the question, maybe get an understanding of this. If you were a Jew, and you were sitting in that church, and you just got this letter, and he talks about the falling away, the apostasia, the departure, what would you think he was talking about? He, you're an Israelite, you're there. Um, what, what would you refer back to? What would you think of? Would it be the people of old Israel who came out of Egypt but never entered the promised land? No, it wouldn't, probably wouldn't be it. 
I mean, why would they, why did they think? Here's a hint. Why did they think they were in the day of the Lord? What what evidence did they have? And where did they get that? The Romans, the persecution. They were in the persecution. Where did they get the idea that persecution um, and the day of the Lord were connected? Remember, Matthew 24. And what does Christ say in Matthew 24 about this time period? Well, it's interesting what he says. In Matthew 24, um, Christ talks about the signs of the tribulation. Um, let's look at verse 9. They will deliver you up to tribulation to kill you, and you will be hated by all nations for my namesake. Many will be offended, many will betray one another, will hate one another. Many false prophets will rise up and deceive many, and because lawlessness will abound, the love of many will grow cold. What does that sound like? What they're going through. A great falling away, right? Um, you're going to be hated by all nations. False prophets will rise up, deceive many. Um, it's a time of great deception. Um, Luke says, uh, verse 4, Jesus answered and said, to Take heed that no one deceives you, for many will come in my name, saying, I am the Christ, and deceive many. Well, take heed that no one deceives you. Look at that. Let no one deceive you by any means, verse 3. For that day will not come unless the falling away comes first. Um, the departure. The departure from what? Departments, departure from some former profession of truth. Um, I think what it is, is, uh, well, what Paul has here, I mean, what uh, MacArthur has here in his, the, the thing, he talks about it being a specific event. See, this event was clearly identified beneath the consummate act of rebellion, an event of final magnitude. Um, I'm saying here it says, uh, he says the falling away is the abomination of desolation that takes place at the midpoint of the tribulation. Now I'm not sure I buy into that either. I think it's just a general falling away, a general departure from the faith, a mass departure from the faith of, of people in general. Is that supposed to happen or do you think it has happened? It will happen. And we see it generally today. Now I understand what he's saying about the abomination of desolation because when is the son of man revealed? How does, or the son of perdition? How does he reveal himself, the man of sin? How does he unveil to the whole world? In the temple? In the temple when he sets himself up as God. So that's probably where that comes from. I, I would say, I'm, I'm not sure that this is the specific event of the abomination of desolation. I would more or less probably fall into the camp that says it's just a general apostasy. And, and, and Israel... By the way, instead of Israel following their Messiah, the true king, who are they going to follow? This false Messiah, the Antichrist, the false one. So they're going to go after him. He uses the word rebellion. Yeah, a rebellion. And I guess the question is, if, if Israel signs a treaty with the Antichrist, what are they in essence saying about the true Christ? He's not it. By the way, anti means two different things in the Greek. One can mean against, 
And that's what we usually think of it. You know, the Antichrist is against God. The other, however, is a better, I think better understanding means instead of. Instead of. He, he proclaims himself to be the Messiah. And he sells himself as the Jewish Messiah. Why do you think the Jews signed a treaty with him? To them, he is their Messiah. The one who's going to give them peace and prosperity. And they signed this treaty only to be duped by this man of sin. Then when will it be revealed to them that he will not be a Messiah? That he is not a Messiah? At the midpoint of the tribulation when he sets himself up as king and goes out to kill him. Sets himself up as God and then goes to destroy Israel. Yeah, so you're, telling, you're saying that when he, sets up, when he sets himself up as God, that's when the Jews realize that he's not the real Christ? Yes. Well, when they sign a treaty with him, when he claims already to be Christ. They're going to be deceived, I think. That's where some of these fiction books talk about, when they sign the treaty, there's no indication that he'll claim to be Christ yet. Mm -hmm. Time of peace, you know, protection of Israel, he may not, I mean, he may not verbally stand up and say, I am the Christ. But what is he going to do? Well, he's going to do what they want their Messiah to do. Which, what do they want their Messiah to do? Restore Israel, give them peace from their enemies. Rebuild the temple. He's going to do the thing. I mean, you're right. He may not stand up and say, I'm Christ. I mean, we, we don't. We have no idea. I, you know, that's, that's trying to fill in the lines between, the blanks between the lines. But, but it is a good moment that he sets himself up on the Holy of Holies. Yeah. Yeah, that's, I think you're right. That's the place where the Jews will be able to say, or at least the ones that are still paying attention. Hold on. Wait a minute. This is the one thing that we can't tolerate. Yeah, this isn't, he isn't the one. Um, see, one of the things, one of the problems I have with, um, one of the things I, one of the problems I have with the uh, mid and pre-wrath and post tribulational um, positions is I, I don't think the church will know who this man is personally. I don't think we'll know who it is. What if, what if we knew who the Antichrist was? What would some Christian nut do? Kill him. Right? I mean that's what Falwell do. Go shoot the Antichrist. That would really help Bible prophecy out, Jerry. I'm just joking. <laughs> but no, really. I mean if you knew who the Antichrist was, if we had him identified, um, I don't think we will. I don't think we'll identify who this man is. I think he's going he's gonna to come on with flattery and the world is going to run after him. Now, you know, if you see that happening today, what are all the Christians in the world going to start screaming to the world? Antichrist, imposter. We're gone. There isn't going to be anybody saying the guy's a fraud, I don't think. I mean, just think about it. what would happen if, we'll pick a name, Joe Blow. A guy named Joe Blow stands up and he makes this seven-year treaty with Israel and he's starting to unify the world and everybody's seeing him as a great leader. What would all the Christians do? Screaming out of their lungs. That's right. But there isn't any screaming in the Bible because it says the whole world goes after this man. I mean, the whole world essentially is, is following after him with few exceptions. They're all after this guy. I don't think we'll know who it is. I think the Antichrist is not revealed until after the rapture. After the rapture of the church. I think in fact what he might do is he may use the chaos that the rapture produces to 
to, 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 to bring himself in. See, and, and I could be wrong. You know, we'll probably be up in heaven in 100 years. You'll come up and say, well, Schaefer, you blew it. You didn't know what you were talking about. All right. But I sort of see this. I sort of see the rapture here. And then I see the treaty here. I, I see a little bit of a time break in between it, personally. Okay. Because um, <clears throat> we know that the that tribulation starts with the signing of the treaty. I mean, just think what would happen. Just think what would happen if the newswire... Let me ask a question. The signing of a seven-year treaty of peace guaranteeing peace to Israel for seven years. How far in advance would you know about something like that? I mean, it's not going to be, you know, I, I, I pull up my pager and tomorrow morning and say, peace treaty signed for seven years. I mean, this is something that's going to be in the works, you know. It's going to be a lot of hoopla and all that stuff. What happens if all of a sudden you hear all this hoopla about the seven-year treaty that is, that is in the works and it's going to be signed next month between this, this, rule, this particularly powerful world leader and Israel? What are all the Christians going to be doing? What would you know? And it's here, yeah, rapture. You know, I mean, you think it's bad now. Wait until something like that happens. That's why, personally, I think that there is a break in between the two. The rapture occurs, the world is in chaos or whatever for a short period of time. The Antichrist is one of those who comes in, restores order. Part of restoring order, he's going to sign this treaty with Israel, guaranteeing peace. And for seven years, middle point of that, he will break the treaty and set himself up as God. I mean, that makes the best sense to me. I could be totally wrong on that. I'm not going to write a novel about it either. Okay? Because I get, t I, I'm, I am so sick, I hate to say it, I'm so sick of all these stupid novels. I want to throw up. <laughs> you know, because what happens is people read this and they get, they get some notional idea about what's going to happen. Then they see it in all the newspapers and I mean, today, what does the, what is, what is the average person in the world think of Bible prophecy? And people talk about Bible prophecy. What do they think? Nuts, crazy. I think that's all part of the program to discredit it. So that when it does happen, for sure, no one will listen. The world not going to listen about prophecy. But that day of the Lord, and I think the day of the Lord refers to not only the time of the tribulation, but the millennium. It's not going to be not going to happen until the falling away comes first. Now, whether you want to believe that as a general falling away or the abomination of desolation is either one, and the Son of Man is the man of sin is revealed. Now, the question that Paul wanted to ask the Thessalonians was: the man of sin revealed to them? No, it wasn't. So it can't be that they were in the middle of this thing. And, and what is this, this man of sin, the son of perdition? There's a lot of different names that are used to this, this guy. But probably man of sin, son of perdition, he is, he's a man characterized by sin, rebellion. I mean, that, that is what he is. The son of perdition means he was, his, his destiny, his entire um, being reeks of perdition, of damnation. Um, is he alive today? I don't know if he's alive today. See, Henry Kissinger, probably not. Gorbachev, probably not. Every time some new world leader comes along, you get a hundred books talking about, well, here's the Antichrist, you know. Come on, folks. I'm not sure we're going to know who the Antichrist is.
But what does he do? Well, he opposes and exhausts himself above all that is called God or that is worship. So he is in direct opposition to God or above anything that is called God. What do you mean, anything that is called God? I think what it means is that he is against all... This is, this is Alan talking now. He's against all religious expressions that would deny deity to him. What, what religions of the world today would deny deity to the Antichrist? Three of them. Yeah, which three? Christianity, Muslim. Muslims. Islamic. Islamic. Now we're going to study this next fall when we do Daniel Revelation. But um, my understanding, for all it's worth, is that what's going to happen around the midpoint of the tribulation, I think you read in Ezekiel 38 and 39, the Gog Magog invasion of, of Israel. And they're going to kill all the Well, look at all of the nations that are listed. What, what's, what's the common thread of every one of those nations? Every one of them is Islamic to the core. Go, you know, all, all those independent states of Russia, all those formerly part of the, the CIS and that, what are most of them? Muslim, Kazakhstan and all of those, they're all, Rus they're all Muslim. Um, you look, he, he, lists, he lists the countries that, that are that composed like Kazakhstan and Azerbaijan and all those things. He lists Libya, Muslim, Egypt, Muslim, Ethiopia, what's that? Well, in the biblical times, that was the nations sort of south, that's Saudi Arabia and all them. They're all Muslim. All the Gulf states are Muslim. He speaks of Persia, what's that? Muslim. Togarma, what is that? Well, that's the Eastern European pieces of the independent states. What are they? All Muslim. Turkey is listed. All Muslim. Um, I think it's going to be a Muslim invasion of Israel. And what, what does it say happens to this army? How many of them? Two thirds? Five, six. Five, six? Five, six are gone. God's going to do it. God says, I am, he says, I'm going to take care of this one. Everyone's, God uses human instrumentality for the most time to um, affect his will in the world. But in this case, God steps in and says, I'm going to take care of this one myself. Why doesn't he kill them all? What, is there a significance for leaving? He's going to leave a remnant of them. He's gonna, he, he, God does not want to create a, a pure power vacuum. I don't think. Okay? What happens if God destroyed every Muslim in the world? What would that create? Happiness? Well, it would create a power vacuum, I think. Why? But right now, because there's Muslim, because there's Christianity, because there's Judaism, it keeps everything in balance. Yeah, subtract, just wipe out every Muslim in the world. I think there'd be a power vacuum. Now, what Antichrist does, I think, is step into the vacuum. I mean, that's, that's a pretty devastating defeat of the Muslim countries. He's going to step in there. Wait. God's going to destroy these people? Absolutely. And then Antichrist will step in? I think Antichrist will step in and claim credit for it. Well, I think as well, though, he leaves a remnant. And he leaves a remnant. God leaves a remnant. That the battle we can't explain this. No, that's not Armageddon. This is the 
this is the midpoint of the tribulational period. Now, where do I get? I mean, I'm giving you all this stuff. All right, you're saying, all right, where'd you? Okay, what book did you read? What novel did you pull that one out of? All right, uh, no, I didn't pull out any novel. What I did is I, I, I look at Ezekiel 38 and 39. I look, I look at all of those countries, and it says God says I'm going to put hooks in your jaws and I'm going to bring you down. All right. What, what else do we know happens at the midpoint of the tribulation? What happens? Well, you got the rider on the white horse. Now what do you get? The rider on the red horse. What's that? War, right? That's what it says there, war. All right. So something happens in the midpoint. You got war. All hell breaking loose. All right. Also, you go back over to Revelation, not Revelation, Daniel 7. Talks about the Antichrist. And it talks about, I think, what it, what it's referring to here is the wars. He's going to set himself between the pleasant places. He's going to set himself in a pleasant place, be, you know, on Mount Zion, set himself up as God to be worshipped by the world. I think he's going to step in and claim credit for the destruction of Gog Magog, which is the, I think, the designation, general designation for the, um, the uh, Islamic races. I mean, just... Just look at this. If you go back to Ezekiel 38, I, I want you to see where I'm getting. I'm not pulling this out of the thin air. And you've got to understand, too, that, that this is all... Look, folks, you, make, you take your best shot at this stuff. Yeah, we know. You know, so... But so please don't walk out of here saying, okay, Alan's got it figured out finally, because I, I could be totally wrong. Yeah, I'm just trying to put it together biblically. All right. In Ezekiel 30, 39, uh, well, let's look 38, verse 38. Son of man, set your face against Gog in the land of Magog, the prince of Rosh, Meshach, and Tubal. And don't, don't go, well, that's Moscow and Tobolsky and all that rot. You know, that's what Hal Lindsey did in his book, you know. I don't think that's what it is. You just go back, go back to the table of nations. What countries were these? Well, these were due north of Israel. All right. What is due north of Israel? Well, get a map and go due north. And what do you get? Well, Kazakhstan, Azerbaijan, um, Belarus, all of those countries now, which are pretty much Muslim to the core, those are all due north of Israel. Okay. Um, you've got, uh, he said, I'm going, to put, I'm going to put hooks in your jaws and lead you out with your army, horses, and horsemen, all splendidly clothed, a great company with bucklers and shields, all of them handling swords. Then he lists some other countries. What do you got? Persia. What's that? Modern day? Iran. No? Iran. Iran. Oh. Iran hates Israel. I mean, they would destroy them in an instant if they could pull it off. Ethiopia. What's that? Sorry. Well, the Saudi Arabian area. Which, and also Ethiopia is, is Muslim to the core. The modern day Ethiopia. But what... what but really, if you, it, what this here is, it, it, modern day Sudan and Ethiopia occupy what used to be called Ethiopia. That's the area south, all right? Saudi Arabia area. Saudi Arabia, they are very anti-Jew, anti-Christian, all right? Um, and Libya, well, that's Libya. That's Muammar Gaddafi and company. Gomer and all his troops, the house of Tagarma from the far north and all of its truth. What are those? Well, that's the East Bloc countries, if you just, Turkey, and all of them that are very much Muslim. Look at, look at the Serbs and all that. You know, there's a, there's a significant Muslim contingent there. They like to kill each other right now, you know. Um, God says, I'm going to pull all of you people in, and I'm going to put hooks in your jaws and drag you down to Israel. 
And uh, over here, let's see, let me find the other countries that it lists here. There's some other countries. Oh, verse 13. Um, Sheba, Dedan, the merchants of Tarshish. Which Sheba and Dedan? Well, that's the Saudi Arabian Peninsula, the south end of That's the United Arab Emirates, Yemen and all of them. That's, that's that area. All of them are Muslim. Which country isn't mentioned? Not Syria be there. They'd be some of the northern ones. You mean from the Middle East? Yeah. Kuwait, Jordan. No, Jordan. Jordan is there. Iraq. Iraq. Iraq's not mentioned. Why? Probably destroyed before Well, again, I'm going to go out on a limb, and you can I can hear the saws now, sawing it off. But as I look at Revelation 18 and 19, or 17, 18, what is destroyed at the end of the tribulation? Oh, the Yeah, but there's two pieces to it, right? Which piece is destroyed? Well, there's ecclesiastical Babylon, 17. But in 18, that's a different Babylon. That's a socio-economic, political Babylon. Basically an economic Babylon, if you want to think about it. And... Uh, when that Babylon is destroyed, what, what happens? What's the, what's, the, what's the reaction of the earth when economic Babylon is destroyed? Remember? It says the merchants stand afar off and bewail and cry and mourn over the destruction of this thing. Where's Babylon? Basically, it's right in Iraq. My prediction, for all it's worth, is that somehow, and I don't know how it's going to work out, but Iraq is not going to be part of this Islamic coalition because they're going to be most likely the economic capital of the world. Really? That's the best understanding I have. What's going to happen with New York City? You know, I, I'm just saying, I mean, when I look at that, and, and here's another reason why, and I'm, I'm going all over the map tonight, I'm sorry, but it all ties in with Second Thessalonians 2. Um, there's, two th there's two prophecies that make me think that. One is in Zechariah, what is it, three or four, you have the picture of the woman in the ephah. And he said, this is wickedness. And he throws this woman down in this ephah, he puts a lead cork on it, and he got two storks that lift it up. And where are they taking it? Well, they're taking it to the land of Shinar to be established. Now, when Zechariah wrote that, what was in Babylon? Nothing much. It's to be established. And what does an ephah represent? And what is an ephah? Trading, Trading commercialism, business. It's like a bushel basket. What's a woman, a, 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 an unclean woman, what is that a picture of? Which is a picture of? And relig and, and, um, religious idolatry, etc. I think that's a prediction of a, of a future rebuilding of this Babylon place. Um, also, if you look at the prophecies of Babylon, Isaiah 13 and 14, Ezekiel, or, um, Jeremiah 51, 50 and 51, specifically those, those four chapters, what will cause somebody not to use the bricks to even build houses? 
to think that they're cursed, but in the modern world, you know, not they're cursed. You know, we don't buy into that. Huh? Tainted or... Yeah, or radioactive. I mean, God destroys. What does it say? The, the merchants of the earth stand afar off and watch the smoke of her burning send up into the sky. Why wouldn't they go a little closer? Probably afraid. Here's another thing. Um, how far is Babylon from the sea? I think it's about 75 or 100 miles inland. Now, how, what kind of fire would you need to see, for, to see it about 75, 100 miles away? Pretty hot, pretty big. I don't know if that's the way it's going to work out. I really don't. I'm just saying I see prophecies of a future Babylon to be yet rebuilt that have not yet been done. I mean, Babylon has not been destroyed like the Bible says it's going to be. Um, in Revelation, you see the angel flying through heaven dropping a millstone into the water, saying this is Babylon, it's cast down, it's cast down. You see heaven rejoicing over the destruction of this city. Um, it seems to me it's going to be a city. Now people say, well, that, that Babylon there is referring to New York. I've heard that, you know, it's referring to New York. Well, I mean, God has a pretty obtuse way of saying that. If he says Babylon, what does he probably think? Babylon. Babylon. Now, could it be New York? Yeah. Well, if you want to think of Babylon as a picture of world commercial trade and all that, where, 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 where is the trading capital of the world at? New York City. I mean, I, I, again, I mean, I'm just taking my best shot at trying to understand this. I, I seem to think it's going to be a literal city, and I'm just, I'm just looking at the, the biblical text, and it seems to me it's interesting that Iraq is not mentioned as one of those that ally themselves against Israel, that land area. And the only reason I can think of is possibly they were, they're not allied with the um, Islamic coalition, rather they are allied with the Antichrist, with the global economy. I could be totally wrong. I really could. I could be totally wrong on that. But you have this, this, uh, this man, Antichrist, in charge of this, the world system, and he's, he's, he's known as one who opposes and exhausts himself above all this God God that is worship. Here's, here's the reason why I, think, why I think God Magog is referring to Islamic destruction. Um, for him to stand up and say that he is God and have the people in the world say, yep, you're right, you've got to get rid of Islam, Christianity, and Judaism. Well, God just took care of Islam for you. And where are the Christians? Most of them. They're gone. So what do you got left? What's he do? He sets himself up and goes to kill him. And that's what you see in, in Daniel, or not Daniel, in Revelation chapter 12. It talks about how he goes after Israel. The remnant of the, he goes after the woman to destroy the woman. The woman there refers to Israel. He goes after them to destroy them. So going after Israel is one of the latest, that's how I understand it. I mean, I, I could be, again, I, I keep making these disclaimers only because I get so tired of people standing up and say, this is the way it's happening, you know. I, I just don't think you can get that precise. All I'm saying, what I'm trying to do is this. I've got a whole list of prophecies over here that's, that have to come about. I know they have to be fulfilled. And I got, I got a world situation over here. What I'm trying to do is saying, how, how is there some system that can 
make this all come together. Alright? This is my understanding of it. I could be wrong on this thing. But, I do know, but there are some things we do know for certain, I think. I think we do know for certain that this man <coughs> is going to set himself up as God. And that he sits in the temple of God showing himself that he's God. He's going to set himself up in the temple at Jerusalem and claim to be God. Now when does this happen? Well, it happens three and a half years through the tribulation. Three and a half years. And Paul says, well, how do we know that? Well, if we go back to Daniel chapter 9, it tells us that. He will confirm the covenant with many for one week, and in the middle of the week he will break it. Okay? How does he break it? He sets himself up as God and demands that the world worship him. Christians are gone. Judaism is, is I mean, they've just almost been beat up by the Islamic nations. He comes into that power vacuum, sets himself up, and goes after Israel. And Paul says, don't you remember that when I was with, still with you, I told you these things. Remember when I was there and I was telling you this stuff. This is not secret stuff. I told you. You understood. And now, you know what is restraining that he may be revealed in his own time. For the mystery of lawlessness is already at work. Only he who now restrains will do so until he is taken out of the way. Now, I have heard all kinds of weirdo stuff on this. Okay? The restrainer. Now, now the, the pre-tribulationists, if, if you come from that background, who have they said the, the, the restrainer is? Right. And they say, see, the Holy Spirit is taken out of the earth. And for the Holy Spirit to be taken out of the earth, we've got to be taken out of the earth as a church. Therefore, that proves the pre-tribulational rapture. I don't think that's what it's saying at all. Let me ask a question. If there's no Holy Spirit on the world, can anybody be saved? No. Now, I, I think that most likely the, the role of the Holy Spirit will revert back to that which was in, in place in the Old Testament. Today we have the indwelling spirit. We're given the air bond, the church is. But I think that um, during the tribulation, you go back to a pre-church um, sort of administration of the Holy Spirit. He is here. If, if the Spirit was not here, no one would be saved. So I don't think it's referring to that at all. Um, now the pre-wrath people, what do they say? Well, obviously this is Michael the Archangel. Now don't even ask, I have no idea where they came up with that. I mean, I, to me that's beyond me where they got that because that doesn't make any sense. That makes zero sense to me that this is Michael the Archangel. Who is it? Well, we don't know. But what I do think we can make a case of is, um, case four, is what restrains evil in the world today? And by extension from that, it's God. Um, is this the Holy Spirit or God? I think you make a case that this is the Holy Spirit, but not in the sense of Him being taken out of the earth but of him ceasing to restrain the full expression of evil. Have you ever heard of this common concept? Common grace? You ever hear that? 
God's common grace. Even to the unbeliever, God has a common grace. What is that? Well, the rain shine, falls on the just and the unjust. The sun shines on both. And the world is not as bad as it could be. God restrains evil. God restrains evil in the world. God restrains evil in society. But what happens if God takes the constraints off? What if God no longer restrains evil? What will happen? It's like taking the brakes off a car going downhill. It picks up speed. I think what this is taken here is that God in his restraining omnipotent sovereignty is keeping the man of sin from being revealed as an act of common grace but someday God is going to remove the restraint and that is going to allow evil and Satan to have their full expression. But do you think that even then they'll have the full expression? They have the full expression in the sense that God is not restraining them anymore. At all? Whatsoever none? I think God takes the restraints off. The, I think the tribulation, last half of the tribulation is God, is God telling Satan, take your shot, take your best shot. Just take your best shot. And, and Satan takes his best shot. I mean, God restrains Satan today, right? I mean, God doesn't let Satan just do anything he wants. Or Satan would destroy everyone, right? So God doesn't allow Satan to do anything he wants. God restrains him. Uh, if you want to think about it, think of the book of Job. I mean, came to Job, and, or God, and said, look at Job. And God said, yeah, you go this far, no farther. This is as far as you can Satan go. Permission. Satan can only go so far. And I think God is restraining not only Satan, but restraining the demonic hosts. They can't go. They can only go so far. But someday God's restraints will be lifted and they will be allowed to do their best, take their best shot. And when they do, this lawless one will be revealed. What about the part that says he'll do so until he is taken out of the way? Mm-hmm. God's pulling back the spirit. I mean, that's God will take himself out of the way. But yeah, yeah, understand the Trinity. I, 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 would, I, could, I could understand. I, I think there's something, you know, you can't sit down and say, okay, this is the way it is, and if you don't believe this, you're, orth, you're not orthodox. All right. It's a brainstorm, Yeah. Could it be the fact that there are, like Sodom and Gomorrah, the fact that there are Christians, the fact that there are praying Christians here? That's a possibility. That's... Yeah, yeah, that is certainly a possibility. However, we do know that during the tribulation, there'll be an innumerable company that that does come to to know Christ the world over. But but that goes back to something very interesting. I remember back in reading, I forget who it was, Vivekananda. If you remember that, that's a weird name. He was some Indian guru, pagan type, and he wanted to show up at the World Congress of Religions back in the 1800s, 1880, 1890, somewhere around in there, turn of the century. And he was some really powerful religious god guru type over in India. But he got here at the New York Harbor and he had to turn around and go home because he said he, he, he was not able to do the miracles and have communion with the spirits over here that he did back in India. Because of the, most likely the Christian influence. I, I don't, you know, that, that's mystical and all that. But uh, th that could be part of it. That could be part of it. Um, 
my best understanding here is that this is God's sovereign operation. God is sovereignly restraining evil, holding back the full expression of evil, because God, if God did not, we would implode on ourselves very quickly. I mean, God understands just how wicked men are, man. If, if there weren't any restraints in society, you know, it's bad enough now. Just, just take all the laws out and all the restraints. You know, we would, we would destroy ourselves as a society. And then it says, and when the, then the lawless one will be revealed whom the Lord will consume with the breath of his mouth and destroy with the brightness of his coming. Who gets destroyed? Well, the Antichrist. Now, here's, here's the point why I don't believe in a post-tribulational rapture. How can the man of sin be revealed, oppose and exalt God, oppose himself against God, if he is not revealed until Christ comes for us, but then he is destroyed? There has to be some break in between the destroying and Christ coming for us, for him to do his deeds. There has to be a break in there. So I think that precludes totally the post-tribulational view. It leaves the only possibility of being like a pre-wrath, a mid-trib, or a pre-trib view. And it says here, God is going to consume him with the breath of his mouth and destroy him with the brightness of his coming. God will destroy Antichrist personally when he comes back. Now, it's interesting, because, but this was prophesied back in the Old Testament, this destruction. If you go over to Daniel chapter 7, in um, the Old Testament, you see the same thing, Daniel 7. I'm trying to think uh, exactly where it was. Um, well, let's start reading in verse 23. Um, the fourth beast shall be, like, shall be the fourth kingdom on the earth, which shall be different from all other kingdoms and shall devour the whole earth, trample it, and break it into pieces. The ten horns, or ten kings, who shall arise from this kingdom, and another shall arise after them. He will be different from the first ones, and shall subdue three kings. Well, the same imagery is used over in Revelation to refer to the fact that Antichrist is going to be given his power by ten kings. Who are the ten kings? Well, I've heard ever since I was growing up, well, that's the United Nations, or the United Europe you know, the, the, the economic, uh, the European economic community and all that. Well, that doesn't make any sense to me, alright? And this is the reason it doesn't. Because when those ten kings give him authority, who does he have authority over? The whole world. So they can't be those ten kings. What about the rest of the world? Okay. But I'll tell you what's something very interesting. If you've been following um, the way things are sorting out in the world scene, there are ten, they've, they've, there are places that have divided the world into ten global economic re regions. Um, North America is one of them, South America is one of them, Europe is one, there's an Africa and Australia, there's two or three over, there's the Pacific Rim countries and some other ones. There's ten of these. Hmm. Now what happens if they gave their authority to the beast? And what is the character of the, of the Antichrist really, the character of his um, kingdom? What pulls it together? Prosperity, Prosperity economics, all right, um, 
Yeah, is that the way it's going to happen? I, I don't know. Okay, what about... Um, and how's he going to... End of verse 24, three kings. Well, it, it just means that seven of the ten give him their allegiance, three don't, and he subdues them. How does he subdue them? Well, in a global economy, how would you do that? By sanctions. Or you don't, yeah, you just sanctions. Even if you, I mean, go out the extremes like the, the UN, we assume there's some entity yeah. that continues, like the Security Council, or it could be a new group. We don't know, you're right, but that's uh. exactly the type of control. We don't know what this is. I don't think it's the European Economic Community, personally. Yeah. All right, but it, it, it that, now that is one, because you see, see what you have there, and also the, you have the king of the east, the king of the north, the king of the south. You know, so th there are different kings that have authority, but if they give their allegiance to this man, he could have control of the whole world, but there's going to be rebellion part way through. Politically, when it was unthinkable, when everything was separate, but when you look at NAFTA, yeah. you look at the Euro, you still see people gravitating toward the global economy. Yeah. See it in business every day. We take it for granted that yeah. economics are Well, look what happened last July. Russia has a problem and our Dow drops 20%. All right? Mexico has a big Yeah. So you got North America, you got South America, you got Europe, you got Russia, China, you've got uh, the Indian subcontinent, you got the Pacific Rim, you got Australia, you got uh, South America, and you got Africa. I don't know if that's what they are, but there are ten of these things, you know. Possibly that's it. I, I just don't know. I can't be dogmatic about it and say this is it. And I'm not going to write a book saying that that's it either, you know, because you just don't know. But what are you going to do? He's going to speak pompous words against the Most High, persecute the saints of the Most High, and intend to change times and law with that. The, he's going to change the calendar. He's going to, the idea here many times is referring to holy days. He's going to change the holidays around. You know, you're not going to have the 4th of July or something like that. You're going to have different holidays. And when you said, you said at the beginning that we're not sure if he's actually going to stand up and proclaim that I am God. Or, yeah. But here it says that he will actually speak those words. He'll speak against the most high, pompous words against the most high. He's going, his, his character will be revealed part way through the tribulation. I think, you know, I think if you're part, if you're alive during the first part of the tribulation, say, look, man's fine, mankind's finally got his problem solved, this is it. We finally got our act together. I think it's going to be a time of great prosperity, a relative peace. Um, it's going to be, man's going to be great. Until Antichrist stands up and says he's God, then, and then all hell breaks loose. And it says the saints will be given in his hand for a time, times, and half a time. How long is that? Three and a half years. But the court shall be seated. They shall take away his dominion to consume and destroy it forever. Then the kingdom and dominion and the greatness of his kingdoms on the whole earth shall be given to the people, the saints of the Most High. His kingdom is an everlasting kingdom, and all of his dominions shall serve and obey him. Um, this is the Antichrist. Now I'm trying to find a one verse here. Here it is, verse 11. Yes, yeah, chapter 7, verse 11. I watched them because of the sounds of the pompous words which the horn was speaking. I watched till the beast was slain and his body destroyed and given to the burning flame. 
What's the burning flame there? The lake of fire. Hell and the lake of fire are different. You know that, right? They're two different places. Okay. Um, when a person dies today, where do they go? Hades. Not hell, Hades. Okay. What happens is at the great white throne, Hades, those in Hades are judged and they are sent to the lake of fire. Everlasting fire. Who are the first two occupants of everlasting fire? Satan. No, the false prophet and Antichrist. They're the first two occupants, Revelation 14. Actually, Revelation 19. They're the first two occupants. A thousand years later, who joins them? Satan. And shortly after that, the rest of mankind who, and, and I believe by extension, angelic beings who that was prepared for. So what is hell then? Both of those combined? Hell is a descriptive term. Hades is the technical term for the place. Hell is descriptive. Hell comes from Gehenna, which is the Valley of Hinnom, the garbage dump, the burning, filthy garbage dump. It's a descriptive term, I think, for the, not only the, 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 the place of the loss. It could be Hades or the everlasting fire. All right? It's a descriptive term, not a technical term. It describes what it's like. So here, Daniel first explains what he sees in, in general. Yeah. In the big picture. And then toward the end of the chapter 7, he kind of gives a little more detail. Right. Is that how it works? Yeah, that's the way it works. Which verse, in which verse does he do the switch? Um, going general view to well, you just got to work, you got to look through it there. Well, um, verse 8, it says, yeah, it's a serious vision, and many times while he's having a vision, um, an angel comes. Uh, like in verse 15, I came near to one of the those who stood by and asked him the truth of all this, so he told me and made known to me the interpretation of these things. Here's an angel that showed up and helped Daniel understand what was going on. So Daniel was asking questions of the visions that he saw. Okay. But here you have the, you know, God is going to destroy him. Verse 9, the coming of the lawless one is according to the working of Satan with all power, signs, and lying wonders. And with all unrighteous deception among those who perish because they did not receive the love of the truth that they might be saved. And for this reason God shall send them strong delusion that they should believe the lie. That they all may be condemned who did not believe the truth but had pleasure in unrighteousness. Now I heard a lot of weird interpretations of this. One of them I heard was, look, if you don't accept Christ before the rapture, you're not going to accept Him afterwards. You're dead. That's it. You're doomed. You'll never respond again. Don Ingram taught that. I really don't think that's what this is saying. I think that what this is saying, it's just a general term. If you refuse to obey the truth, which means you fall away from and apostatize, what is God going to do? He's going to fixate you in that choice. You say, that's not fair. Well, that's the way it works. Look at Judas. When, when was Judas lost in the eternal sense of the word? When was he lost in the sense that he would never, ever, 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 ever have an opportunity to be saved? When he hung himself? Nope. When he kissed Christ? Nope. Nope. 
Did he ever reach that point? Yes, he did. While he was alive? Yep. He reached the point of no return. While he was point of no return. When Satan entered him. And what did Christ say? That which you do, do it now. Do quickly. Because, say, because even during the, the Last Supper, Christ gave him the morsel of honor. He was still reaching out to him. But it said, uh, you know, he, he walked out of the presence of the Lord. When he walked out of the upper room, he walked out of light forever. But Satan entered him before he entered the upper room. But why did Satan enter him? Think about it. Here's a guy... He just could have been capable of doing something, what he did, just by on his own. Yep. Living with now, people. Satan happened to use him. Absolutely. Here's a man... Stop and think about it. Okay, here's a man who walked with Christ, we don't know how long, but maybe three years. Give, give him the benefit of the doubt, three years. What did he see in three years? I and mean, we got a smidgen of what he saw, but what would he have seen as a disciple of Christ in three years? Like what? He would have seen Christ make food out of nothing. He would have watched him raise the dead. He watched him heal everybody that came, not like Benny Hinn. Everybody that showed up got healed. Yeah. Miracle after miracle. And what did he do as he walked into Jerusalem just before Christ's crucifixion? Where did he go? Went to the priest to betray him. Why? Because he wasn't going to get the kingdom that he wanted. What did Judas, what was Judas after? The worldly kingdom. The worldly kingdom. And what was Christ not delivering? That. And when he finally figured out that I'm not going to get this and I might just get myself killed by the Romans, what did he do? He sold out the Lord for 30 pieces of silver. I've, I've heard a theory about Judas that explained the fact that why he actually betrayed Christ was the fact. There's a reason because him thinking that if he betrayed Christ, that Christ would be put in that position of seeing himself on a cross, then he would unleash all of his powers and bring about the kingdom that Judas had been waiting about. Possibly. I don't know what Judas's motives were. All I know is that Judas was not in it for Christ, he was in it for Judas. If that were true, why would he have any remorse? Because there's two kinds of repentances. The Bible teaches there's a repentance on the life. You know, there's a repentance that says, I did it, I sinned against God. I, 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 I sinned against an infinitely holy God. There's another one type of event that says, I just feel sorry for what I did. It wasn't the best decision. But his quote goes beyond that. I have sinned, he said, for I have betrayed innocent blood. Yeah, he I mean, knew. There's another recognition on who Christ was. That doesn't say accepted him. Yeah. But I mean, that, that idea, you have to go to the yeah. Satan in or sin. Yeah. It's not just not all of the here, here's, here's the Here's the problem. Here's the problem. Um, here's God. God is infinitely light, holy, whatever. Okay? And uh, we're walking this way. Okay? What, what brings us to salvation? Well, there's repentance from sin, but that's not going to get it. Just because you repent doesn't mean you're saved. It's repentance from sin and faith towards God. 
Judas may have had repentance from sin. He, have may, he may have felt bad that he did this evil thing. But he did not go to God for forgiveness. Well, and it says he, he was felt guilty because he was condemned, not because he was innocent. Yeah. It, I, I was just... Yeah. I've never heard that. And I don't think... And it, may be, it may have been that Judas had not, did not even think that, that Christ was going to wind up on a cross. Right. That may not have been part of his, his understanding. But he did. And... Uh, Judas was something the Bible calls an apostate. What is an apostate? It's someone who passes the point of no return. I think. Now, now is that the sin against the Holy Spirit? I think it, I think it's the unpardonable sin, whatever you want to call it. There comes a point when God says, "Okay, I'll, I'll, I won't bother you." Now, an apostate is but an apostate where they want to believe. Nope. John MacArthur had a sermon on that one, about two months ago. What exactly does it mean to know Christ but never have met him? Yeah. Here you are. Here's a timeline. Yeah. Here's a timeline of a man's life. You're born and you die. I mean, unless the rapture, of course, but we'll assume you die. When, uh, when did you pass the point of no return? When is it impossible for you to ever be saved? At what point? Maybe toward the end of your life, closer. I, I, I would say, my biblical understanding, for all it's worth, I would say it could be any time in here. I mean, there comes a point when you've got to be rational and I may be able to make a decision. But it could be any point in time. The Spirit doesn't come calling again. Because you've got to admit... Forget this site. Forget apostasy. Forget all that stuff. Will you, would you admit that there comes a point in every person's life, if they've been exposed to the gospel, there comes a point when they've heard the gospel for the last time before they die? Is that a true statement? I'm talking about people who've heard the gospel. There comes a point when they've heard the message for the last time. Now how long do they live after they hear that message? Well, it could be an hour, it could be a day, it could be a month, it could be a year, it could be 10 years, it could be 20, 30, 40, 50 years. I've thought a lot of the phrase, there's a sin of death, but I've never quite put it in the context, mm -hmm. but there's a sin. Some, there, there, there's a time at which you say no for the last time, and you may live for 50 years. But you will never, ever, ever, ever come back, because God will not always strive with man. You look at like a Voltaire, apostate like Voltaire. There, there came a point in that man's life, probably or pretty early on, when God finally said, okay, fine, I, I won't bother you. Thank you for listening. This podcast was made in part with creative consulting and production assistance by Third Mass Studio. For your production needs, send an email to thirdmassstudio at gmail.com. For other lectures in this series and more biblical media resources, visit theopenword.org.